Hello and welcome back to Carl's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing The uh, Edge of the World, uh, one of the short stories from the Last Wish collection. Uh, joining me again is Joshua Rapier, good friend of mine. Uh, so to begin, uh, you had disclosed to me uh, in text that you found this story rather boring and le- not as interesting as some of the others. So could you answer as to why? Yeah, so to be honest, I found this the weakest of the set. I feel like perhaps I misunderstood it the first time around, but I found it more annoying than, uh, than interesting as the other ones were. It didn't have that same moral punch to me. Uh, but then when you said that you really liked it, I was like, oh, maybe I'm the idiot. Maybe I got completely <laughs> misunderstood this. So very recently, I gave this a secondary listen. And uh, I will say I enjoyed it a lot more the second time around. Uh, stuff annoyed me the first time. I realized, oh, it's quite funny. It's quite a unique take on it. And there was a very interesting moral conversation at the end. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I still stand by this is my least favorite of the set, to be honest. So I'm very intrigued to see why this ranks so highly on yours. Um, yeah, well, my least favorite out of the collection is honestly The Witcher itself, Weishman. Um, it- it suffers, uh, like, I, I got into it when I recorded on my own uh, that short story, but just to reiterate, like, it was, it, it begins as a short story that he submitted at a whim, at a suggestion by his son, uh, and it was just this random idea he had. He's an accountant. He didn't even have any writing experience, and he won third place with it. And uh, the Witcher short story is fine. It's good. It's serviceable. But there's nothing unique about it that brings that really Witcher quality that I'm looking for to it. That philosophical debate, uh, the uh, sometimes a bit humorous, but also uh, that humor comes with some sort of edge to it. Um, the Witcher was very much a straightforward fantasy story. It was the retelling of Sleepy, uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty, uh, with a vampire in it, you know, and, uh... Implied in Yes, exactly. It's a perfectly serviceable story, it's fun, and Geralt is kind of out of character in the first ten pages, because he kills a bunch of people in the tavern oh, for no reason. Okay. Yeah. Um, but once again, that, that story begins at a whim... It was uh, it was never intended to be spawned into this huge franchise. There are issues with it. Something that me and Claudia got into in our uh, retrospective was that uh, Geralt feels like an outline of himself in that story. Whereas Edge of the World, uh, this comes much later in the short story progression, and it's clear he's got a um, he's got a goal he's working towards now. Uh, the characters are much more uh, themselves now. Uh, and Dandelion's introduced here, or Yaskir, whichever word you want to use. Um, do you actually know the story behind that, real quick? That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, yeah, why why is, why is the difference exists? <laughs> it makes no sense to me, so I'm quite curious to learn. Okay, I will go ahead and answer that, um, and then I'll get back to my original thought, because uh, it's actually really simple. Uh, so Yaskir is the name of the character in Polish. Uh, Yaskir in Polish in the Polish language means buttercup, uh, and wow. type of flower. Uh, when they were translating it to English, they thought it sounded, and I quote this verbatim because I don't agree, it sounded too feminine. I had a feeling that would be the case. Yeah. yeah, so, uh, they decided, 
Uh, and once again, uh, Sapkowski does not do his own translations. They got two different translators for this. Desnuzia Stock for The Last Wish and Blood of Elves, and then David French for everything else. Uh, and so they have different translations for different things. And that, that can be annoying when reading through the English translations. Uh, so they wanted to go for a more manly flower, and so they chose dandelion. Because... Uh, <laughs> Oh my yes. god. Um, <laughs> yes, because Yaskia just reeks masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um and so that that was the that was the decision behind it. I I got introduced to Witcher via the games like most people in the Western world. He's called Dandelion there. Um and uh then I started reading the books and he's Dandelion here. Of course, Dandelion is misspelled in the first book, uh, in Last Wish and Blood of Elves, because they couldn't decide on which uh, spelling they wanted to do, whether it was going to be with an E or an I, uh, which leads to Peter Kinney saying Dandelion a lot. Yeah. Um, so, uh, when Netflix made the uh, decision to go back to Yaskier, I was like, okay, that's fine, I don't care. Um, but I have read it for years as dandelion, and dandelions are actually one of my favorite flowers. Um, so, like, uh, I have a natural inclination to like that name more anyway. So I just say dandelion because it's out of habit. Yeah, I was introduced to the character as Yaskia, and as you know, I really like the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a bit off put when I first learned about the... Is it original name? I don't know how to phrase it if dandelion is his original name or not now, because it sounds very topsy-turvy. Uh, I'm very used to it because I found it quite a to be quirky kind of name, you know, really sticks mm. out for the for the bard type character. Mm. I kind of alternate between both names now. You know, when I talk about the Netflix version, I tend to use Yaskir, and yep. when I talk about the book version, I stick with Dandelion. So uh, the character with two or three names, if you count the mistranslation. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I suppose Yaskir makes a little bit more sense because his real name is Julian Alfred Pankratz, and so it just makes sense that his stage name would begin with a J. Uh, so, like, you know. Uh, but uh, I just like Dandelion more. It just sounds better coming off my tongue. Even if the reasons for switching that name in the English translations was less than salutary. Um, yeah. I think it would be funny if it was still Buttercup. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> I would love it if the Henry Cavill version joke just called him Buttercup. <laughs> like the scruffy tone of his. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, the the uh, smoke 200 packs of cigarettes a day before talking, Geralt. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, back to my uh, reasons for liking Edge of the World. Um, it, it, it's got that fun tongue-in-cheek style. There's There's a lot of fun to be had in that early half. Uh, where it's Geralt, a very well-educated person, and Dandelion, this very uh, flamboyant poet, dealing with a bunch of country folk. And uh, there's something inherently funny about that. It was deeply humorous to me this in the audiobook version, because uh, Peter Kenning went with a Devon country accent. Uh-huh. I'm from Devon, uh, my <laughs> gran has that accent. So it's <laughs> deeply funny to hear yeah. that coming from these characters. Yeah, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, we have a large amount of farmland, uh, and, like, 
Uh, even our big city, Oklahoma City, which is where I live, the capital city, uh, like it's mostly farmland, with the exception of the metro. Uh, so, like, I'm used to city folk bumping into country folk, and the uh, the dichotomy there is always quite funny to me, uh, just inherently. Uh, but then you got uh, the introdu- introduction of Torque, uh, the Sylvan. Uh, and what's funny about him is not only is his dialogue really great and funny, uh, but uh, there's a moment where Sapkowski goes out of his way to make fun of Tolkien. Um, yeah. yeah, where it's like, hey, uh, I'm gonna challenge you to a riddle, and if I win, I stay, uh, if yeah. you win, I lose. Uh, and Geralt's response is to put his hand in his pocket, just like Bilbo did. The only difference is instead of asking, well, you know, what do I have in my pocket? He instead throws a freaking ball at him. Uh, it's hilarious. And it's, it, and it's, it's Witcher at its best of juxtaposing tones uh, to set you up for the fall. Because it starts really lighthearted, a lot of fun. And then the elves show up, and suddenly things get very serious, very quick, and the in the reality of the situation sets in. It starts as this fun fairy tale, and then slips into dark misery. Uh, and uh, I like when, uh, like, Witcher is many things, and many people will go, oh, it's dark fantasy, and I would say, yeah, sure, uh, but it, it's got its moments. You know, it, it it's got it, it's got its times when it wants to be humorous, uh, when it wants to be a little uh, you know, lovely and cozy and comfy. Um, it's it's good at juxtaposing itself uh, in ways that some fiction I think struggles with. Um, th- there are some uh, you know, uh, other fictional, especially fantasy, that struggles whether it wants to be dark, grim, dark, or lighthearted. He can't figure it out. And I think Witcher strikes the perfect balance. Uh, and then what I what I really love ultimately about this short story is the situation with the elves and specifically the conversation between Geralt and Philavandral. Uh, because it shows on a micro scale what a lot of the saga is going to be talking about, the cycles of violence and how we perpetuate it uh, through our own actions, uh, out of anger, out of bitterness, out of regret, uh, and how effectively we are stuck uh, repeating a pattern throughout history, and there's nothing we can do to break that cycle, and everybody's going to suffer because of it. Yeah, I did like that sense of inevitability about it there is this really mm. melancholy sense uh, like that you know Geralt is trying to reason with these people but then Yask is there as like voice of humanity just insulting these people saying you can't win against us we'll destroy you and I feel like he represents the human side of the argument and that there can never really be truly peace between them but mm-hmm. uh, sooner or later there will be bloodshed Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting balance there represented between those three characters. It once again brings up that point of Geralt is, you know, stuck between humanity mm-hmm. and uh, the monsters and the elves, you know, the, the fantastical creatures. 
he's the one stuck in the middle of it. He's trying to find reason, uh, and he doesn't know which side to be on. It's an interesting character dilemma. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll get into this if you um uh, in one of my other questions when I ask you about specifically about the elves, but I like how Geralt tries to reason with Phil Evangel because at the end of the day, with Yasker standing in for humanity, and with Phil Evangel obviously representing the elves, they are both extremes of each side. Uh, and we see Geralt stuck in the middle trying to reason and go, hey, 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 let's calm down for a second here. Uh, and no one's willing to listen because they're, they are so polarized, they're so angry, they're so bitter, uh, and they want nothing but blood. Blood calls out for blood. And uh, that kind of thinking uh, leads to a lot of problems in our real world. The us versus them idea. Um, and so just, just seeing it on a micro scale, what that kind of culture, that the culture of fear, the culture of us versus them breeds, um, it's nice to see it on a micro scale, but then when we get into the saga, we will be exploring that a lot more in the, the macro level. Uh, so I think that's what drew me to the story is, uh, just the, the inherent sense of, uh, dichotomies of tones, and then straight up attacking something that I have seen in real life, the extremism and what it leads to. So, uh, what did you think of the literal deus ex machina? That's exactly how I described in my notes, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, as you can say, just, no, she, I know the character was set up early in the story, but ultimately I feel like it just took away Geralt's whole point of being there. Uh, He's, he felt in the end, he, all his talks was just rendered to him being an observer instead of someone who actually got food to anyone. Mm, interesting. I read it as uh, breaking the cycle that basically she is sitting there, Denimab is sitting there observing the situation, and she is seeing what the actions are going to be taken. Uh, who's going to start the fighting? She's there's a clear sense that something's going to start. Will they willingly stop? And uh, will will they will they realize that taking anger and vengeance and saying that's justice is complete is a complete falsehood? Will they realize it? Uh, and so when she shows up at the end, yes, it's little Deus Ex Machina, but it's a one that has a purpose, in my opinion, because the entire point of the story is how, uh, through misinformation, through cultures of fear, we perpetuate this cycle uh, of hatred, of violence, of misery, and we foolish, foolish people, foolish mortals, believe that we are special, believe that we are unique, uh, and to someone like Dana Mabe, we are not. We are as significant to her as a speck of dust. And only someone with that purview, that understanding, can come in and understand the cycle is ridiculous and stop it. Uh, and so she's there to teach us a lesson that says, think beyond yourself in your own selfish, petty reasons your own personal vendettas realize this world is much bigger than you okay yeah that's that's a very fascinating point 
if I if I recall correctly, the Netflix version completely cut it out of that story, didn't they? Correct. Uh, so what your thoughts on that? Um, well, I have lots of problems with the Netflix version of this story, mainly because they mm. cut it down to be 10 minutes or less. I don't know the exact yeah. time frame, but it's 10 minutes or less. Yeah, the second episode is more of uh, Yenis' origin story, wasn't it? And then you had, uh, I guess you could say, the B-plot, Geralt meeting Yaskia, and then uh, a trimmed-down version of this story. Yes. Uh, in a way, and you might find this controversial, in a way, I think I might prefer the Netflix version in that I feel like it did trim off a lot of, I guess you could say, fat to the story and just created a much more, like what to me, uh, you know, the dumb idiot who's not, who doesn't have any fantastic <laughs> insights like you do, a more streamlined story. Uh, but now you're explaining all this stuff to me, I'm thinking, oh, maybe the Netflix version might have missed a the point there. Yeah. So... Uh, it is a fascinating discussion. Perhaps it would have worked better if they just separated the Yennefer subplot and this, uh, you know, Yaskin and Grout subplot into their own separate stories instead of like mashing mm. them together. The, the, that is, that's an. Uh, I think episode two uh, of uh, uh, of the Netflix show is the weakest out of all eight of them. Um, and I say this as someone whose favorite character is Yen. Um, her backstory is slowly unveiled to us throughout the books, and, um, it's not something we see straight away, and I don't have a problem with them front-loading it, I felt like they extended it to the point that it was unnecessary, and I don't know if that is, like, a symptom of our current Hollywood storytelling. Um, maybe it's because of the influx of superhero stories. We are obsessed with origins to the point of uh, nauseam. Uh, that uh, everything has to have a beginning. We can't just start at some place and slowly unveil a character. The character has to start right when the viewers see them. And so that... To me, I did not need uh, already having read the books. Already knew her backstory, but I did not need that front loaded. Uh, and they could have easily spliced it out throughout the of the episodes, and it wouldn't have been a problem. Um, and the they clearly had no idea what they wanted to do with Siri at the beginning. Uh, uh, you when you read Sword of Destiny. Specifically, the short story, The Sword of Destiny, you will see what they did, and you will be very confused. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> yes. Um, so, like, I think they would have been better off taking this short story, um, cut it if you need. There's a few scenes you could cut that are just there for comedy's sake, or for the fun of Geralt and Dandelion getting to know each other. Um, but you can cut those down to the bare-bone basics. Uh, so, the, the encounter with the old lady in the book. Uh, the encounter with Tork. Uh, the encounter with the elves. You can make it, like, three to four or five scenes. Pretty easily. And uh, the Hexer, ironically, does this. Um, uh, the, the Hexer has a really odd way of, uh, of, uh, adapting the story if they mash it up with Eternal Flame, one of the short stories from the Sword of Destiny collection. Okay, interesting, how does that work out? Um, very strange, because the first half of the, like, 
the first 15 minutes of the episode is like over a little over a third of the Eternal Flame story, and then suddenly it stops. Then it goes into like five minutes of original content, and then suddenly we're in Edge of the World. Okay. Intriguing method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then we're on the Edge of the World pretty much verbatim for the rest of that episode. Um, I think they handled the, the elf situation a lot better there. Uh, but they also, the Netflix version, not only cut Danime from it and made it Torque who stopped it, but also they changed pretty much all but one line of dialogue. And, uh, and that, ch that changes the context of the entire story. And especially with the conversation between Geralt and Phil Evandrel, um, it, the the themes I think are lost in a way that I don't think was intentional, and I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if people will pick up on the nuances. Um, I've encountered people on uh, Reddit specifically likening the elves to the Native Americans. Mm. They're not a Native American allegory; they never were. Uh, they are about how one day's oppressors can become one day's oppressed, how the cycles of violence continue, and history repeats itself over and over and over, just with a different face each time. At one point in this land, the elves had conquered everything and had enslaved the dwarves. This is, they are not innocent, by any means. Uh, and what happened to them was pitiful, yes, and horrible and miserable. Uh, but they are not uh, wholly innocent in this great cleansing, as they call it in the show. Um, in many ways, they did it themselves. Uh, and so it feels like they... The entire writing team, with the exception of one person who is Irish, that's Declan Dabara, uh, on the Netflix show, is American. And th this is something I've seen. Everybody who's American reads the story and says they're Native American allegories. And I go, no, they're not. Uh, why would a Polish man who has no context for the Western world make a Native American allegory? Yeah. Uh, that's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a very Western view on things for an Eastern story. Um, yeah. and, and so... I'm not sure if it was intentional to make the elves come across as more innocent in the uh, Netflix version, or if they're, they plan to add nuance to it over time and show that Phil Evangel was lying through his teeth. Um, but that has caused problems in the fandom, where if I want to talk about how the elves are hypocrites, I have to specifically say, not in the Netflix version, because people don't read it correctly because the Netflix version has kind of changed yeah. the, the theme about them. Yeah, fascinating point. Uh, it does sound like the Netflix version dropped the ball in terms of, uh, I guess you could say, nuance mm -hmm. to get a more Western way of understanding it, I guess you could say. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point. Mm -hmm. In If you look at the, the scene between Geralt and Phil Evangel, uh, Netflix Geralt doesn't have his speech about you're, you're pitiful with your sacks of grain. Uh, you, you know, you 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 hide in your mountains and you'll come down eventually out of bitterness and anger. 
and uh, and you'll slaughter yourselves because you're too prideful to admit that you are losing your way. He doesn't say that. Instead, he remains silent for most of the scene, and then occasionally pipes up to go, eh, you're wrong, Phil Evangel, and then Phil Evangel will have a counterpoint, and then Geralt will just remain silent. Uh, and, and then, of course, he has that really awful line, I'm not human! <laughs> uh, and it's just like, that, no. No. Uh... Yeah, like, I have many misgivings with the Netflix show with of itself, but there are si times that they get the, the short stories just about right, where I quite like it. But this, they really dropped the ball, in my opinion. Um, so, what did you think about uh, the Netflix show's version of this story, and do you think it did it justice? So, I might have been biased in my first time reading the book, because to me felt overlong, whereas the Netflix version felt like a more streamlined version. Mm -hmm. uh, all the points you're making now are very fascinating to me. I wish there was like a middle ground that the Netflix version could have met in. Like, it, keep that somewhat streamlined element, but still add in more of the nuance, more of the thematic discussions to it. Mm -hmm. So it would have been good if they did like a, a rewrite to it, like or, um, a more diverse kind of writer for it. Yeah. So I call like the matched versions, like uh, the Yaskia interaction and the Netflix version I keep, but keep the uh, discussions from the book. And I really like the ending of the of the book with the, the campfire, you know, go out yeah. Yaskia and talk, just sitting by the campfire, trying to discuss things, read a book, talk, talk about the inevitability of the oncoming genocide, pretty much. Mm. Very melancholy yet somehow warm ending it's, it's quite hard to describe uh and i did like the final line night said the devil that's, that's a very nice yeah very dark fairy tale ending <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah like i i wouldn't mind to see like some sort of adaptation that uh kept the bite of the of the story the social commentary and the nuance of it but cut it down like i'm not saying that it, it, this story is perfect i just like it a lot um but uh it definitely could use with a trimming if you're if you're not all into the 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 weird trippy country time uh funny moments that can easily be cut like I, it's not a problem um i i think more more than anything it's nice to see Geralt being quite lively and funny um because uh, this is something I'll bring up in my own stuff, uh, and I think we brought it up in Grain of Truth, is Geralt likes to think of himself as a loner, but he's really not. Uh, he craves companionship, and you notice that when Dantelion's around, he's actually a lot nicer, a lot, lot uh, chummier, uh, just genuinely just a, a more uh, lively person to be around. Um, and I, I sort of like that interactions with him. So, uh, that's another thing that the Netflix show did that I wasn't a big fan of is let's turn this into Shrek and Donkey, where he punches him in the gut because funny, uh, laugh, everybody laugh. Um, it felt forced to be, um, is it, that also isn't helped by, uh, I'm wondering how they're going to change it later on because they got a lot of criticism for this. Uh, the showrunner, Lauren, 
uh, said something in an interview uh, that uh, uh, made a lot of people trepidatious is she said, Yaskier thinks he is Geralt's best friend. And I was like, thanks, he is. What are you talking about? And then the way they play it in the show, it's very clear. Geralt is just rather annoyed with Yaskier just being there. And that's not, that's not Geralt to me. That's, that's grumpy snowman character that the creator for the Netflix show. So what did you think of the, the cycles of violence and how that was talked about with the elves? Was that interesting? Uh, what did you think it was an allegory for? Uh, being British, you may, you may not have the, the Native American thing that a lot of Americans pick up on. Uh, what did you think of that? I confess I didn't immediately have any allegories in my mind at the time. I, you know, I was aware that it was uh, tapping into the human uh, condition of us against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't one I directly compared to a specific culture. Um, one line that really struck to me was talk between Geralt and the Elven King about mm. Geralt promising that he would witness uh, the battle, witness the fall, something very melancholy and inevitable about it. Yeah. About the sense of, if we are to go in this blaze of glory, we want to be remembered, we want to be witnessed. Will you be that witness? I felt like a rather personal moment. You know, Geralt's not a guy who normally does this thing. He he wants to be a witcher. He just wants to tackle monsters. He keeps getting dragged into these moral conflicts between humanity. And it's interesting to see him begrudgingly say, I can, you know, if I can, I'll be there. I'm not giving any direct promises. Yeah, uh, I what I what I get from that Pacific line is Phil Levandrel has resigned himself to his fate that he believes we're stuck. We can't move. Uh, the elves so desperately want to hang on to their culture and everything that remains of it that they are willing to starve themselves to death and not learn common farming techniques and basic agriculture. They're literally stealing that from the humans. They're having Torque go and learn this stuff so they can learn it instead of asking the humans for help because they don't trust the humans. Uh, and so they're so fearful, and in their fear, they are destroying themselves, much like the humans, in their own fear, are destroying themselves by first dispatching the elves, and then now want Torque to be gone, even though they freely admit that Torque helps till the soil and tends to the crops and, uh, and fertilizes the soil. Everything's all good, but uh, he's kind of annoying us now, so we need to get rid of him. Uh, so, like, everybody's living in this culture of fear and that culture of fear breeds bitterness and hatred and then over time we centralize that and there there's this concept of when you are stuck uh in in a cycle of every day is the same you can't see a way out and so for phil evandrel he sees the elves are dying the humans are prospering we're a dying breed, uh, and no one cares, so we're going to go out and we're going to go and martyr ourselves just out of pure spite that we want to hold a big gigantic middle finger up to the humans and say, fuck you, and we're going to die doing it. Um, and that's the sad truth, is that they 
aren't concerned with conserving their culture. They aren't concerned with preserving them as a people or adapting to live in a new place. What they're concerned with is getting revenge. That's all they want. And so they're stuck in this pit of their own making, and they refuse to get out of it. And that's what the cultures of fear breeds in us, is nothing but contempt and hatred. Uh, and well, one of the books in this story is called Time of Contempt. So, major theme of the saga. Very cool. Do you think it would ultimately be the same if it was vice versa? If the humans were at the bottom of the chain and the elves were at the top, do you think it would be ultimately the same cycle of stubbornness and spite and hatred and uh, of genocide and martyrdom? Uh, yes, because there's a thing late in the books that says yes. Ah. But also, my own personal belief, yes. Yeah, very fascinating point. Mm, uh, I... I'm a casual observer of history, uh, and I and I don't make any blanket statements because I'm a 24-year-old idiot who has a degree in creative writing, so what do I know about the world? Uh, but uh, I, I watch as people um, in politics, in technology fields, basically create a flag for themselves. I am X. I am blank. Uh, hell, we're both comic fans. I'm a DC fan. I'm not a Marvel fan. You know, that kind of thing? Yeah. And you pl you plant your flag in the soil, and you say, I ain't budging. You move, please, because this is, this is where I stand. And the other side does the exact same thing. And then we'll yell at each other, and they'll yell at each other until all that's left is nothing but bitterness and anger, and eventually one of them will have enough and act on it. And then... That group splits, and it begins all over again. That's the cycle of history. That is the story of human life, of the human condition, is we constantly keep moving that goalpost, constantly keep moving that flag, constantly splitting into groups. Apple versus Android, DC versus Marvel, right wing versus left wing. That's just modern examples right here. Yeah, we put everything in boxes instead of... Uh... You know, interacting with each other, learning from each other. Exactly. Um, and so, like, it becomes this bit where we so firmly believe we are right and the other side is wrong. And that eventually grows and grows and festers into something dark and evil. That it's not that the side is just wrong, the side is evil and must be cleansed. Um, I know as someone in America right now going through, uh, you know, ha having witnessed the election of 2020, um, that was very scary to someone living in, in America. Uh, you got to see an outsider's perspective of it, but I watched as people went to each other's throats over who they voted for, just as though a name means anything to anyone outside of politics uh and that that scares me that we as humans have yet to ever learn from our mistakes that we just keep perpetuating the cycle and it will keep moving over and over and over and it's it it, it takes many forms from 
as mundane things as DC versus Marvel to as large and complex as right wing versus left wing or on even on racial lines, black versus white, etc. It just keeps going and we never learn. In point, one of the most popular human questions is, is there life outside, uh, you know, out there? Are there aliens? And my, my, my response to that is often, well, even if there is, we should never meet them because we can't even solve our own shit. So we'd <laughs> inevitably uh, mess with them. We'd inevitably judge them uh, for not for being different. And, and then we just set our mess out to the stars. So let's fix our shit first. You know, let's solve the quality and all that bullshit before we even think about, you know, first contact and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to quote another line, a uh, future line from this series, which hunts were never about witches. Uh, it's all about passing the buck, basically, just saying, hey, I don't want to accept responsibility for my own shit, so I'm going to blame it all on this person. Exactly, yeah. Witch hunts never ended, they just evolved into different names. Uh, yep. you know, the McCarthy area is basically the 50s version of the witch hunts, as the Crucible mm-hmm. would tell you in every history class. Mm-hmm. And so, he, to me, this is... Uh, so... One important note is that this is a Polish work of fantasy, and Sapkowski was born just after World War II ended. Poland was devastated after World War II. Their capital city lied in ruins, um, and they took decades to recover financially, culturally, everything. And people treated them like shit for it. I mean, Polish history is full of people taking advantage of them and treating them like shit. Um, you know, even their supposed friends. Uh, and so you see someone who is trying to grapple with the, who grew up in such a tumultuous time in his own home country, growing up under Soviet rule uh, in the 80s, around the time this gets published, uh, Poland was under martial law. The Soviet Union had declared martial law, and that martial law lasted three years in Poland. Polish history around this time is not pretty, it's not nice, it's kind of miserable, and it's hard to believe that someone who witnessed that can come out of that and decide to make this funny little fantasy story to talk about everything he experienced. Um and have such heart and such caring in it and expose the hypocrisy of humanity and say we do this to ourselves there's the incredible power of good storytelling mm-hmm. nowadays you got a lot of uh people online who criticize shows like doctor who and star trek for being political and all that nonsense but that's what makes stories fascinating is that i can offer a perspective on real life issues like that lenses an audience can connect with, you know, both on a fantasy and human level, that's great storytelling, and people who criticize that are not seeing the, the big picture, pretty much. Yeah. As I said to you one time when I think we were discussing Star Trek, when, some, when you brought that up, of either they lack basic reading comprehension, or they're just hating for hate's sake. So, yeah. and um, yeah, like, Witcher is highly political. It is highly uh, about the situations that Sapkowski not only grew up in, uh, but also what he's witnessing. 
Um, it's in the show, so I don't, I can't spoil uh, spoil it. But a war will start pretty soon in these books. Uh, in Baptism of Fire, Geralt and a group of people are traveling through a war zone. And uh, in, Cla- in me and Claudia's retrospective, Claudia is uh, part Korean, and uh, she her grandparents escaped North Korea. Uh, and she talked about that the stories told to her about how people were dragged out of their homes and accused of being Yankees and then shot in the head in the middle of the street just because they had the mere association of being American or associating themselves with Americans. And we will see this sort of behavior throughout the books, and specifically in Baptism of Fire. I know Claudia said, you can tell this is a man who grew up in the aftermath of a war, who watched all this misery and pain, the stuff we do to ourselves, not out of anything other than pure bitterness. Uh, The war is over, but we keep doing it. So... Uh, I only have really one other question for you, and then we can get into your questions. Okay. Um, you you mentioned you had uh, uh, really liked Netflix. You ask here more than book dandelion, at least in text. So, what about uh, show dandelion? Do you like more? <laughs> I'm trying to come up with a very uh, deep answer because you always seem to deliver like ten out of ten responses. <laughs> And I'm feeling inadequate here, <laughs> but it's hard to come up with. <laughs> um, I just love the fun. Just for good, don't feel the need to like, uh, you know, go on long soliloquies like I do. First of all, <laughs> I talk way too much. Uh, and uh, second of all, I spend a lot of time thinking about this because I have no one else to talk to about it. So I have very well formed thoughts over years of rereading. So. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, my listeners will know, I think a little bit too hard on everything. Um, I, I did like a 48-minute uh, uh, episode on uh, sign importance uh, back in Babylon 5 Season 1. And that episode, 48 minutes is longer than the episode itself. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so to return to your question, Netflix Yaskia appeal to my sense, uh, to my love of characters who are you know, they're kind of stuck between being the funny guy who's, who's kind of pathetic, yet uh, is hiding a lot of insecurities and insight into him. Uh, and I, I hope we can see more of that as the season progress. So I remember you telling me that book, uh, Naskia Dandelion, is a more poetical, uh, he has more philosophical in his responses. So I would would definitely like to see more of that element grow in the Netflix series. Mm. Uh, What I've seen so far of Dandelion, it's very interesting compared to, you get, you know, you you still got that sense of, oh, they're the bard, they're the people who shag around, you know, the rogue. Uh, uh, Book Yaskia is very more pompous, I kind of got the sense. (laughs) Yeah. Netflix just feels like this young man who's desperately trying to get fame. He's using Geralt uh, as his, you know, his bodyguard, his self-possessed best friend uh, to get fame and all that jazz. Yeah, I, I mean, this Dandelion to me, 
is someone much like Geralt who puts up a mask. Uh, he puts on this mask of this arrogant dandy. Uh, and he he loves to pretend like he's this womanizing, you know, uh, you know, humorous guy. And deep down, that's part of him. It's just he exaggerates it. Um, there is a sense that there is something underneath a caring person that sees a world hurting and knows only that words affect people, and so tries to use his words to affect some sort of change to make people just that much happier. Um, and uh, I don't mind uh, TV show Yaskir. I had no real problem with him. Um, I miss his hat. I really love the hat with the hair and feather, and I wish they would give it to him. I know in stills for season two, he's got the hat, but I have a feeling because of the way the show does it that it's going to be for like that one scene, and he like took it off a of patron, uh, and then he's going to give it back to them. Uh, sort of a rock star type thing, you know, where you send a uh, send a, bo- a person body surfing, uh, you know, type thing. Uh, and so... Netflix Yeskier is a buffoon 100% of the time. He doesn't show that heart. Um, only rarely did I see him do it. Um, and I think uh, they have the potential to further that. Um, we saw in the trailer, because we... we um, th- This will probably be coming out around the time it, it starts airing. But we're recording this before Season 2 airs. Um, that, uh, we saw in the trailer that a scene from book three that happens to him, uh, that is a very, uh, very emotional scene for Yaskir is going to be happening to him. We saw it in the trailer and I won't spoil it for you because, um, it will be quite a gotten punch when you see it. I haven't seen the trailer yet. I wanted to go into second series as blind as possible. Uh, I think I know what story you're referring to. I think you and Maisie talked about this a few months ago. Uh, that's one of the stories that made me want to get into the book. So if it's what I think it is, I'm very intrigued to get to both the book and the, and the Netflix version. Uh, it isn't a little sacrifice. It's a, it's something from Blood of Elves. Ah. Yeah, it's one of the main okay. saga's stories. Yep, but it, it's a it's a it's an emotional scene for Yaskir, and I hope with that scene we start seeing more of the dandelion I know. This is the dandelion who, in Time of Contempt, will talk to Ciri. And he's watching Geralt and Yennefer yell and scream and bite each other's heads off. They are angry with each other, yet they're so deeply in love and they refuse to admit it. And Ciri is watching her parents effectively fight, and she doesn't know how to comprehend it. And Dandelion goes, well, she's saying she's in love in the only way she knows how. Uh, and, and she's like, what is Geralt doing? He's remaining quiet. He's listening right now. And then Yennefer stops, and then Geralt goes on a rampage, and he goes, now he's saying he's in love in the only way he knows how. Uh, and, and Siri questions, what, how do you know this? And he goes, love is like a pear. A pear has a distinct flavor, a unique shape. But describe a pear to me. Can you? You can't. Uh, and that, that is the entire 
crux of the character I see is I see someone who is uh, using his words to heal as much as he can uh, and is a great observer of human nature and uh, in just the human condition and wishes to leave his mark on the world as much as possible. Anyways, he's the consummate poet or writer, someone who wishes to instill a message onto an audience and hope they listen. I'm very much looking forward to seeing how both versions evolve over time as I get into them. They got plenty of room to work with. Joey Bailey's a great actor. I really like him, yeah. Yeah, he, he's a good singer. Earlier this month, I discovered a song on YouTube, um, and the Wild, and I was like, wow, this is great. This kind of reminds me of the Witcher vibes. And then I looked up, I was like, oh, it's the exact same person. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see him do his own take on it. Yeah, it was funny, like, a year before he was cast, uh, he uh, he was in an interview uh, saying that he was learning to play the lute, and uh, I think, th- I believe it was that interview, or was an interview afterwards, that was like, did you learn the lute just to audition for the part? And he went, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, uh, so, uh, like, they got lots of potential, they got a great actor, I just hope they dig into that. They only got eight episodes per season, and I think that is one of the problems with the show is that it needs more episodes. It needs like ten, like it, it needs a couple, one or two more episodes to really work itself. Eight episodes is just too short. It is too compact. They tried to squeeze two books into eight episodes last season, and boy, did it show. <laughs> Um, and so, like, and while also adding their own original content, so, like, that, like, if they were adapting one at a time and added their own original content, they would actually have room, but instead they squashed it. Um, and so, they got, they got the opportunity, all, the ball's in their court, I'll let them do as they will. So, uh, what questions do you have for me? So, just the one, uh question I've been wanting to ask you for ages is the, the purpose behind Dandelion's you know, name chain. So we got that mm. one covered early in this episode. So the question I want to ask you now is not specifically about this story. It's more about adaption as a whole. It's a more creative question, I guess you'd say. Mm. If you were given free reign over the property, if, you, if Netflix gave you a blank check uh, to write and produce your own witch adaption, how do you handle it? Uh, what would your fan casting choices be? stories would you adapt what will your changes be what would you keep what would you change uh go creative as, you, as much as you want that is a very loaded question because it is a very complicated answer i'm not one for fan casting really because i'm bad at it like notoriously bad at it um uh like my my fan cast for vic sage my favorite comic book character for the listeners who don't know um is thomas jane who's pushing 50 uh he's way too old to play him but i think he's perfect so i think that would work for Vic. <laughs> yeah uh like uh so so i'm notoriously bad at fan casting so i won't even try my hand at that um i did not like any of the fan cast for again a lot of people wanted ava green to be be her and i'm like no she's too old like that uh, Yen is old. She's 94 years old, but she looks like she's 20. You need to cast someone like that who can play that duality of someone who is very old 
but looks young. A Matt Smith type. Uh, to play into the Doctor, the Doctor Who. Doctor Who fan, I greatly appreciate that reference. <laughs> yes. Uh, someone who is very young in real life, but can play in a... Uh, whose acting chops is strong enough to play someone who seems older. Uh, and I think Anya Tsurolta was pretty alright. I have misgivings on some of the decisions they made with her character, specifically in episode 6. Um, but... Uh, for the most part, I think they nailed her character. So um, I can't really go with the much fan casting beyond that. Like who I would, who would I cast as Geralt? I don't know, really. <laughs> uh, definitely not Beefcake Cavill. Um, but like, even then, I like Cavill as an actor. I just wish that he had, he was willing to play Geralt like I see him. Uh, but that that's neither here nor there. So, what would I do story-wise? I would... I was actually thinking about this last night, ironically enough, uh, because I've been putting together, to the, the listeners who don't know, because this is around the time this was recorded, Babylon 5 was just recently announced as uh, being rebooted. Uh, and that was, the, that was the thing I just covered in my show. <laughs> Uh, and I talked about a lot how I wouldn't mind seeing a reboot and see some of the original ideas that had to be cut due to budget constraints or actor constraints uh, return in some way. Uh, and so I've been making a list, sort of a Babylon 5 bingo, uh, of what I think will be changed, what I think will be kept in the reboot. Uh, and while I was doing that, part of my head was going... How would you do a particular thing in uh uh in uh, Witcher? And because to me, a lot of the Witcher is about the power of stories and how we bring our own biases to that stories uh, to do those stories and uh, how our own perspective changes it. So I would take a scene from the last book. And make it the opening scene. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this uh, so it doesn't seem too spoilery. Um, Siri, a much older Siri, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, is bathing in a lake. And a knight comes uh, and sees her, and he mistakes her for the Lady of the Lake. Uh, she quickly dispatches that notion. Uh, and he's got a very weird sensibility about him. Like, he's old-timey. He comes from a fairy tale himself, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm intentionally being vague to avoid saying who it is, because it is an actual <laughs> character from a folktale. Uh, okay. <laughs> if you want to know, I can say it, but... Uh, let's keep it spoiler-free for now. I'll, yeah. I'll try to get to that story as soon as I can. Right now, all I'm thinking of is Prince Charming from Shrek 2. Don't ask me why. <laughs> That's all I'm picturing right now. <laughs> uh, and he asks her what she's doing. She, she explains that she's running away, all this stuff. And he says, why are you running away? And she sits down and she explains to him. And that begins the last book, The Lady of the Lake. That's the title. Uh, and the entirety of the Lady of the Lake is almost uh, pretty much entirely told from series recounting of the events and what happened. 
So I would make it that, and we that's the opening scene. I, yeah, I can see that working. It sounds like a very uh, intriguing cold opener. Uh, there's a there's a proper term for this, isn't there? That you show the ending of the story at the beginning. I just can't recall the exact phase at the moment. Um, it's oh crap! Uh, in media res. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm a film student, ladies and gentlemen, first class, <laughs> and I can't even remember the most basic faces. <laughs> hey, I'm a creative writing student, and sometimes actual literary terms will slip from my mind. Um, <laughs> and then we go uh, from there, and then she narrates the entire series. Uh, like, occasionally she'll pop in with her opinions and stuff. Um, and that's inherently different, because obviously she's not narrating these other books, and she only... She does it in Tower Swallows and Lady of the Lake. Um, uh, and it's only lightly done there, but uh, it is still a device that I really liked. Um, and I think it adds a little edge to it because this story is a tragedy. Uh, and to see how that tragedy affects a person, um, we get to hear her words and how each step on that staircase to the tragedy, personally hurt her. Uh, so I would want her to narrate most of the series. Like, uh, maybe like a, an, op an intro and an outro for every episode. Uh, very similar to the way they're doing Foundation currently. Isaac Asimov's Foundation, uh, Apple TV is currently adapting it. And they have a character who pops in and does an occasional narration. Uh, or Outlander. Uh, uh, Diana Gambleton's historical fiction romance. Uh, uh, Claire uh, narrates for large portions of that series, uh, both in the books and in the show. Uh, and then, as far as stories I would adapt, uh, so the first two books are short stories, and then it pops into the saga, and I can understand from a marketing standpoint to want to go to the saga immediately, which I think is why they smushed the short stories all into that one season. Um, I would... It would take Last Wish, and I would make that Yennefer's introduction. Like, maybe halfway through the series. Um, episode 3, episode 4, episode 5, around there. Um, and we're talking 10 episodes. Um and make that Yin's intro and then I what I would do is episode 9 no episode 8 uh, episode 8 is the sort of destiny short story itself uh, there's a moment in there where Geralt gets a flash to the future I would change that and be it a flashback and make that the ending of the episode, the flashback is to a question of price. Um, question of price is episode 9. Episode 10 is something more. Um, and then we lead into the saga. Uh, as far as the opening story, while it's tempting the opening, uh, the open on Weishman itself, the actual Witcher short story, I would, I would, I would probably do it. 
honestly, I liked opening on the lesser evil. I thought that was a good idea from the mm-hmm. Netflix show. Uh, so I may open on the lesser evil. Uh, wherever I did the last wish, uh, I would immediately do Bounds of Reason. Then I would do Shard of Ice. Those are a three-parter in my head. Uh, that's where we get to see uh, the tumultuous in-and-out relationship between Geralt and Yennefer, how they weave in in and out of each other's lives constantly, and, you know, uh, uh, together with much passion, break apart with much pain, and then immediately come back to each other. Um, I would have to fit a little sacrifice in there somewhere. I don't know exactly where I would put it. Um... The prequel novel, Season of Storms, has some interesting ideas, but I think it would be best to cannibalize it and use it at other points in the story, because it just doesn't work as a season of television. Um, especially because it's only Geralt, uh, and that's it. I mean, Dandelion shows up for a little bit, and Yen has a cameo, but Siri isn't even born yet, so, like, um, it, it would be difficult to do. Um... Yeah, that's the, that's the rough, very rough ideas of Kyle doing it himself. Uh, my, my ironically, my therapist actually once encouraged me to write scripts, uh, to write my own version of a Witcher show. Um, and when I sat down to do it, I panicked because I felt like I could not do the books justice, um, in any serviceable way. Um, and even though I would be the only one reading it, and then maybe my therapist, I did not feel like I was the one to tell this story. Um, maybe that's like imposter syndrome or something, but, um, it didn't feel right. But the two changes that I would absolutely do is make Siri the narrator from the beginning, open with the scene from The Lady of the Lake, and the flash forward in Sword of Destiny is changed to a flashback leading into a question of price. I think that's how I would do it. Very right. cool. Cool stuff. Uh, do you have anything else to do with uh, Witcher in general or, Ed- or Edge of the World or anything else? Uh, I believe I'm good for, good for today. I'll try to come up with more stuff for the, for the next episode, whichever boy I choose. I'm still yet to get into Sword of Destiny. Uh, if anything sticks out, then I'll be, then yeah, I'll be happy to talk about it. Okay, well, uh, he is currently reading through Sword of Destiny. I will be covering Road with No Returns uh, at some point. So uh, he will decide when he wants to show back up, uh, as many or as little as he wants to. Um, and I'm still currently debating how I'm going to do the, the the books as a whole, but I'm really leaning towards the chapter by chapter. But we shall see. But anyway, thank you for joining me. And thank you, Josh, again for uh, giving wonderful commentary and unique look at this saga. Because you're coming from the show. That's something entirely different to what I see it. So that, that provides an interesting conversation. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Uh, I always find these talks very fascinating. We always seem to take these conversations into places I never even suspected we'd go into. So it's really cool to broaden one's horizons like this. As you could say. Alrighty, thank you and bye.